Hey listeners, Harry here with the penultimate episode of Air Power and International Security Series 1. Today I have Michael Mazza on the show to talk to us about the disputed sovereignty of Taiwan and the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific region. Mike is a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where he analyses US defence policy in the Asia-Pacific region, Chinese military modernisation and relations between China and Taiwan. So he's a really excellent person to get in on this discussion. I'm going to be asking Mike how likely a conflict between China and Taiwan actually is and what America might do in this scenario. But obviously we're already in the midst of one war and so I'll be interested in hearing whether the war in Ukraine has made war in the South China Sea more or less likely. And what about Biden? There seems to be a real discord between the American president and members of his own administration at the minute especially in relation to Taiwan. So what is America's current policy towards China, and how willing is Washington to commit military forces in the defense of Taipei? These are really important questions, so let's get straight to it. Mike, thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us about the animosity or the the tensions between China and Taiwan. This is probably the most important episode of the series thus far, really, in that it is an ongoing discussion, ongoing issue that has the potential, and I, and I don't want to sound too fatalistic here, but it perhaps has the potential to affect us all in various ways. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast to tell us more on this subject. Thanks for having me. I'd first like to ask about the origins of this dispute. Why is there tension between China and Taiwan? And where did the one China principle come from? So... Depends on how far back you want to go. I think that sort of the most obvious starting point is 1949, when the the Chinese Civil War essentially came to an end. And at that point, uh, you know, the the communists won the war in China, and the nationalist government, the Republic of China government, which was run by the the Kuomintang, the KMT, the Nationalist Party, fled to Taiwan uh, and reestablished their government there. You know, from that time. Forward in the intervening decades, both the People's Republic of China in Beijing and the Republic of China in Taipei both sought ultimately to unify the country, unify China and Taiwan under one government. Obviously, each government claiming to have the you know the mantle to lead. You know where where things have gotten more complicated um, is. You know, it's caused by a couple of things. Importantly, over the intervening decades, Taiwan has sort of established its own independent identity. Um, increasingly, and there's there's uh, public opinion polling on this going back to the early 90s now, increasingly people on, on Taiwan identify as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. And increasingly, people in Taiwan support the long-term maintenance of the status quo, uh, and, and increasingly some, some support, some sort of mood towards formal independence. Um, smaller and smaller uh, portions of the population, really minuscule at this point, are, are in favor of any sort of unification. Right? And, th- and those trends came about in the wake of, uh, and starting as Taiwan democratized. So what we have in China and Taiwan now is two really fundamentally different political, uh, economic, and social systems in different cultures in some ways as well. You know, for its part, 
the Chinese Communist Party sees the Chinese Civil War as, as unresolved um, and, and remains intent on, on ending it by taking full control of Taiwan. Absolutely. So this tension has been going on for some time now. You seem to suggest there that it's been getting worse as, as Taiwan or people in Taiwan have formed their own identity. But what impact has uh, Xi Jinping had on ongoing tensions in the region? Have threats against Taiwan become more explicit under his presidency? It feels like the threats have ramped up in recent years. Is this just media speculation and attention or is this uh, Xi Jinping's impact and the threat becoming more real? No, I think I think the threat is becoming more real. Um, and I should say that, you know, scholars, analysts disagree a bit uh, on this point. Um, but my own take is that the Chinese threat to Taiwan, while not yet imminent, is growing more urgent. Um, and I think that that's for a couple of reasons. So Xi Jinping has quite explicitly made uh, unification with Taiwan a key aspect of his sort of his his governing vision for his time in power, right? The great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation or, or the phrase the China dream. Um, unification with Taiwan is an important part of that. Um, and one gets the sense that he's not willing to put this off for generations and generations as, as past leaders were. Um, you know, the, the second thing I note is when we talk about uh, that vision, you know, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, Xi Jinping has, has a laundry list of what that means. Uh, over over the next um, you know fifteen to twenty five thirty years, and a lot of those those bullet points are focused on economic deliverables, ensuring a more prosperous country, greater prosperity for all Chinese, and those promises are becoming harder and harder for him to deliver on. Uh, there is you know, slowing economic growth. Some argue that the Chinese economy has actually been stagnant for quite some time now. And if he can't deliver on those promises, and his his own policies have made it more difficult to deliver as he's backed away from uh, sort of a market forward approach, uh, then he has to turn to some of the other items on his list, which focus on, on things like national harmony and, and national unification. And so he's been delivering on some of those things. I would argue that um, the extension of a really full Chinese Communist Party control of Hong Kong checks off one of those those boxes. Um, I think the uh, the atrocities that we're seeing in Xinjiang are uh, in part about delivering on promises on of national harmony, social harmony, as well as crackdowns in in Tibet and elsewhere. And so as he checks off the things that are easy for him to deliver on, and as he finds the economic promises harder to deliver on, what does that leave? And it, and it leaves Taiwan. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think a lot of the tensions that we're seeing in the Taiwan Strait now are, are driven by this reality as, as I see it. So it is fairly realistic that we will see China take steps to incorporate Taiwan into the PRC in some form. What do you think this will actually look like? Will we see a war of aggression like we're seeing in Ukraine or something different? I would say that that's not Xi Jinping's preference. Um, his preference is, is that Taiwan willingly, peacefully comes back into the fold. You know, I think he recognizes that, that that's a pipe dream at this point, that that's not going to happen. And so sort of the next step then is if that's not going to work to focus on 
coercive measures short of war, short of the use of force. And that's what we've been seeing since the election of Tsai Ing-wen in, in Taiwan in 2016. We've seen this now six-year-long pressure campaign, which has amounted to things like stripping Taiwan of its diplomatic allies, uh, taking other measures to isolate it on the international stage, you know, keeping it out of UN forums, uh, keeping it out of WHO meetings, um, putting pressure on uh, companies, private sector enterprises to change the way they describe their businesses in Taiwan to make sure they describe it as a part of China. There is a military component, so large numbers of flights in Taiwan's air defense identification zone, occasional flights crossing the median line, the halfway line in the Taiwan Strait, which is considered provocative, more exercises, military exercises, practicing island seizures. Um, you know, and I think a less appreciated component of all of that is a Chinese effort to interfere directly with Taiwan's politics. You know, we, we've seen this happen in past elections with actors tied to China in various ways, trying to um, uh, weaken Tsai Ing-wen, weaken the Democratic Progressive Party, which is is less friendly to China, and try to boost the electoral prospects of members of the KMT. You know, whether that combination of uh, coercive means is likely to bring about some sort of unification, I, I think it's highly unlikely, but but that's where, where Chinese efforts have been focused. I think if that fails, we move on to potential other measures. And, and China has all sorts of leverage it, it can use. So you know, things like trade embargoes, um, things like naval blockades, um, which is which is an act of war, technically, but but also is something far less intense than a, an all out invasion. But I think backing up all those all those other options is is the threat of of invasion and occupation. And we're reaching a point where, you know, for for many years, that that was beyond the capacity of the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military. Um, but we're reaching a point where we're gonna. There's going to be a shift. The PLA is going to change from telling Xi Jinping "No, we can't" to to "Yes, we can," um, and that will change his calculus and and I think allow for a much more assertive, more aggressive approach. What sort of time frame? is on that then because i see people in the press analysts talking about the impact that the war in ukraine could have um, for taiwan i.e that russian victory would be an indication to china that they can proceed forthwith against taiwan because the international community hasn't we've seen certain states condemn russia but there's no consensus on that whereas others say we shouldn't compare the two or link the fates of ukraine and taiwan is it as black and white as this? How is the war in Ukraine affecting the potential for conflict in Taiwan? You know, when we think about the timeline, the first thing I'd say is, you know, I, I think that, that Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership has, has set a, a sort of unofficial soft deadline of 2049. Um, Xi Jinping, again, in, in talking about the national rejuvenation, talks a lot about the mid-century mark. Um, for achieving those goals. And 2049 is the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China. So um, to me, that's sort of the time frame we, sh we should be thinking about as far as the, the time before which 
China wants to, to quote unquote, solve its Taiwan problem. Now, obviously, there's a lot of time between now and 2049, which, you know, we could look at that optimistically. There's time to sort of kick the can down the road, both for Xi Jinping and for the United States and in Taipei and others. Uh, but there are concerns that that the threats will manifest sooner than that. And I'll get to Ukraine momentarily. So there's a couple of reasons that the, the Chinese threat to Taiwan may, may manifest say, over the next 10 years. Um, you know, so, some argue that China over the next five to 10 years is going to maximize its power relative to that of the United States. So China at this point is still rising. Um, it, it does face economic headwinds, uh, but in important ways, it's growing richer and the PLA is growing more capable. Its power is undoubtedly rising relative to the United States. Um, and again, there's an argument to be made, and I think a good one, that that relative power is going to peak uh, sooner rather than later. And if the Chinese Communist Party recognizes that, if Xi Jinping recognizes that, and remains intent on, on achieving his goal of unification with Taiwan, uh, then there will be, you know, he'll have a rationale to act at the point at which he thinks that, again, China's power relative to the United States is at its maximum point. Beyond that point, you know, he may recognize that economic headwinds that China's facing are really going to start to negatively impact China uh, in ways that may be difficult to, to control. Um, it's also around that same point, perhaps, that investments the United States is making now and its military capabilities will begin to bear fruit. And so the sort of the relative power balance will begin to, hopefully, uh, favor the United States and its allies again sometime, you know, in the, in the next 10 years, let's say. How to think about Ukraine in all this. I think China is obviously watching Ukraine very closely. And at this point, I think it's unclear what lessons China is drawing. And they're sort of the lessons that, you know, the free world would like them to draw. There's sort of the optimistic case, but then there's the, the lessons they may be drawing, which uh, I think would, you know, bode ill for, for Taiwan and the United States and, and allies and partners. So what's the optimistic case? China may look at what's happened in Ukraine and see that a uh, you know, a relatively small, seemingly, you know, militarily weak, at least relatively weak country, turned out to be able to put up, you know, pretty good fight against a much larger, much more powerful neighbor armed with nuclear weapons, right? That's something that, that should give China pause. China might look at Ukraine and see that, uh, at least thus far, you know, six, six months in, uh, the United States and its NATO allies have have not only rallied to Ukraine's defense, but stuck stuck by it and continued to provide it arms and economic support to enable it to to defend itself and to defend itself effectively. China might look at the economic consequences for Russia, the consequences that have come about by you know U.S. and and EU government action, sanctions, et cetera, but also the acts of 
uh, private businesses who have decided on their own to pull out of the, the market because they see it as unstable or they see it as dangerous or they see it as bad for their brand. Um, and so that that should give China pause. Um, but you know, there's there's another way China may be looking at all this, which is they may look at Ukraine and see that Russia made a mistake and not and not throwing sort of everything it had militarily at the problem on day one, um, that it gave Ukraine an opening to fight back and it gave Ukraine's international partners an opening to give it the means to fight back. Um, and thus China might, you know, assess that in order to be successful, then it needs to kind of go big, go hard, go fast in a Taiwan straight uh, scenario. Um, it, it might look at the international support for Ukraine, not as united, but as divided, right? It might see that, you know, uh, Western countries and countries like Japan and Korea, Singapore have, have rallied uh, to Ukraine's defense, have supported Ukraine in one way or another. Uh, but they may also focus on the fact that the Middle East, which of course is an important uh, energy source for China, uh, countries in Africa and Latin America have not have not supported Taiwan. And so, you know, it may be the case that China is sort of already writing off the United States and Europe when it comes to thinking about what what sort of international repercussions it will have to deal with. And it, it might look at the response to to Russia's invasion and say. You know, we can manage this. It's not. It's not as as unified and all encompassing as Washington likes to make it out to be. And they might look at Russia and say, you know, Russia compared to us has a relatively small economy. Its market is not that important for international companies, MNCs. Uh, you know, we have far more leverage of our own in the economic realm that Russia does. And so again, this is yes, we'll face blowback, but we can manage that blowback far better than than Russia. Yeah, absolutely. So to continue this discussion about America, because we can't really talk about China and Taiwan without, or any potential war between China and Taiwan without mentioning America. Why is the US so invested in this struggle? There are various geopolitical struggles going on. Why is this one so important to American foreign policy? Taiwan has been important to the United States for decades. It's had a strategic interest there, you know, I think at least since the close of World War Two, I think there are, there are three uh, sort of main reasons why the United States sees that it has such significant interests in the Taiwan Strait and has an interest in Taiwan's, you know, ongoing de facto independence. So if you start from sort of traditional, you know, geostrategic considerations, Taiwan occupies pretty significant geography. Since the close of World War II, um, you know, the United States has assessed it would never allow, never want to allow a hostile hegemon from dominating either end of the Eurasian landmass again, and doesn't want an Asian hegemon to uh, use its, you know, free access to the Pacific Ocean to attack the United States directly, as you know, has happened in 1941 with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so, you know, the United States established what you know, what it came to call its forward defense perimeter, stretching from Japan in the north, south through Taiwan and the Philippines, right? So Japan, U.S. ally, South Korea, U.S. ally, Philippines, U.S. ally, and, and the Republic of China on Taiwan for, for decades during the Cold War 
a US ally. Taiwan occupies sort of a key link in that chain, right? We sometimes think of it as a, as a, as a cork in the bottle, right? So if, if Taiwan were to fall under Chinese control, under Chinese occupation, um, you know, all of a sudden it allows China, depending on how it uses uh, military bases or establishes military bases in Taiwan, allows China to more easily um, and in a more complicated way threaten U.S. allies, notably Japan, also the Philippines, and gives China that open access to the Pacific Ocean, which it doesn't currently have, allowing it to more easily and directly threaten U.S. territory, uh, including with nuclear weapons. So that's sort of reason number one why why the United States sees Taiwan's, you know, again, de facto independence as a as a key national security interest. And secondly, is a, a economic realm. Uh, Taiwan has become an extremely important economic partner for the United States. It's a country of only 23, 24 million people, but it, it punches far above its weight um, for its size. It's it's consistently a a top 10, top 12 U.S. trading partner, and you know, over the last uh, three decades or so in particular, it has become a key cog in high-tech supply chains, right? So this is why there's a lot of attention to, to, to chips, to semiconductors right now. Uh, Taiwan makes the world's most advanced semiconductors, which are, you know, uh, extremely important components in various technologies, which are, you know, designed in the United States. Um, including national security, you know, defense technologies. And so were that sort of link in global supply chains to to go away, and it certainly wouldn't be the same as it is under Chinese control, then, you know, the United States would suffer economic consequences and, and perhaps would, would even find its ability to, to, um, to build certain sorts of defense capabilities challenged. And, and the third reason is is a values-based reason. No, I think the Biden administration is is right to conceive of a global contest between authoritarian democratic systems. Um, the United States has long assessed that a you know world that is safe for democracies is a is a world that is safe for the United States, and so it has or assesses it has an important interest in ensuring the survival of you know, what is arguably the robust, the most robust democracy in Asia in Taiwan. So it's threefold. It's, it's conventional geopolitical security and economic issues that encourage America to be involved in this issue, as well as more ideological democratic agenda there. Now, I would like to ask you what America or what Washington is, is thinking about how it would react to a conflict between China and Taiwan. But that's clearly quite difficult to do, right? You hear Biden on a number of occasions now quite unequivocally saying that he would, you know, authorise boots on the ground, as it were, to, to defend Taiwan. And then subsequently, you have members of his own administration coming out backtracking, saying, no, that's, that's not what we're planning. That's not what will happen. What do you make of this this discord between members of this administration? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, look, the, the honest answer to the question is I don't know. Um, so the, the United States has long maintained what it calls a policy of strategic ambiguity, uh, which means, again, intentionally nobody knows how we'll respond, right? The, the idea being you know, China can't be confident the United States 
will stay out of a conflict and thus is deterred from starting one. And, and Taiwan can't be confident the United States will come to the rescue and, and thus is deterred from taking steps towards formal independence or, or doing other you know, potentially provocative things. So that, that's sort of the longstanding U.S. approach. Um, you know, to your point, President Biden has now three times since last summer, I believe, essentially said that, you know, if if Taiwan is attacked, the United States will defend it. That has a has a commitment to do so. Um, and then the administration in each of these three uh, cases quickly walked back those remarks, saying that, you know, there's been no change to the one China policy, no, no change to tr strategic ambiguity. You know, what what to make of this? Um, you know, so one explanation is is that the president is as confused as everybody else is about what America's Taiwan policy is. That's possible. I, you know, I, I don't I don't think that's the most likely explanation. You know, President Biden is an architect of Taiwan policy. He was in the Senate when the Taiwan Relations Act was was passed in 1980. Um, I you know I I think more more likely is that. Again, given that the president has sort of said this three times now and, and been fairly clear about it before those comments were walked back, I, you know, I, I think what we've learned is that this is indeed how President Biden personally thinks about this challenge and how he would be inclined to respond. Uh, and and the, the problem here is that, you know, to your point, that's that's out of sync with what formal stated policy is. And so I think probably now there is confusion both within the Biden administration, but also in Beijing and Taipei and, and you know and allied capitals around the world. So maybe it's intentional, strategic confusion, or something like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, some have made that that argument that this is uh, yeah, strategic confusion is a, is a good way to put it. Um, it keeps it keeps everybody guessing, um, but but perhaps also clarifies in minds in Beijing that the likelihood of a U.S. response is is perhaps greater than it might have assessed. Um, although, the, you know, I mean, the assumption in China seems to be that they will have to deal with the United States if, if they opt to use force against Taiwan. So in that scenario, then, how realistic is it that the U.S. can actually protect Taiwan? Because if we look at Ukraine, I'm sorry to go back to Ukraine again, but if we look at Ukraine, the U.S. and NATO have been unable to prevent the conflict right on NATO's doorstep. So is it realistic to think that America can actually avert a conflict, the other side of the Pacific, against a determined and I'd say arguably better equipped adversary? Yeah, no, it, uh, it's a great it's a great point. I mean, what, you know, one other point about Ukraine as well, something that China probably takes heart from is, you know, Taiwan is an island and thus will be extremely difficult for the United States and others to resupply. Right? That's been relatively easy to do in the Ukraine case because shares NATO borders. You know, and that's not the, not the case in Taiwan, um, which gets to your larger part point that Taiwan is, you know, an, an extremely difficult thing for the United States and others. To defend, um, you know, first thing I'd say is we shouldn't downplay how challenging it is for China to to launch an amphibious invasion and successfully occupy Taiwan. Um, yes, the PLA is growing more and more capable. Um, yes, the the balance of power both across the Taiwan Strait between China and Taiwan 
and across the Pacific between China and the United States, that, that balance of military power is increasingly favoring China. Um, you know, but as we know from our own shared history, uh, amphibious invasions are notoriously difficult and China really hasn't done one. Um, it's, it's, its military is essentially entirely untested. And, you know, Taiwan gets a lot of grief for the types of investments it has been making in its defense capabilities. And, you know, some of those criticisms are appropriate, but Taiwan has also been preparing for one and, you know, only one uh, sort of defense mission since 1949, right? So uh, they, they are, there is certainly more they can do, but, but Taiwan is laser focused on how to um, defend against invasion. So, you know, this is an enormously difficult thing for China to do. That being said, um, it, it will be enormously difficult for the United States to come to Taiwan's defense. Um, you know, China has been fielding capabilities which will allow it to, you know, potentially allow it, depending on, on you know, how they operate and how they fight, to, to keep U.S. forces at arm's length. You know, we will likely face a scenario in which the United States needs to fight its way back into the Western Pacific, um, a scenario in which, you know, many of its assets that are already there, certainly in Japan and Guam, perhaps in Korea, you know, will be uh, either taken off the board in the, in the early days of a conflict, uh, you know, because of Chinese missile assaults, or, or at least will be significantly sort of delayed in their ability to get into the fight. So, you know, Taiwan is going to be in a position where it may need to hold out on its own for quite a while. And the United States will be in a position where it's going to be engaging in a major, major naval and air fight, you know, the likes of which it really hasn't seen since World War II. Um, and we'll be doing so with, compared to China, relatively small numbers of platforms and relatively small numbers of of munitions, um, at least if we're talking about the next, you know, five to ten years. I was going to ask there whether the first step in a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be a Chinese attack on a U.S. carrier fleet somewhere in the South China Sea. Would that be necessary as a prelude to invasion? And would China be willing to take that escalation? So, I mean, this is this is something that sort of you know people in the sort of your policy community, the China Watcher community are, are constantly debating, right? So um, there's certainly a case to be made, you know, if you're a Chinese military planner um, and, and if you're a Chinese politician thinking about this problem, if you avoid hitting or attacking any U.S. or allied, um, you know, bases, ships, aircraft, other assets in the opening stages of a war, you you give you give the United States um, an opportunity to not get involved, right? So if you strike early, you guarantee the United States is gonna is gonna get into this fight. But you put the United States on the back foot, and maybe you put your yourself, you know, self if you're China in a position to win the fight. You know, if you if you don't opt for that early strike on the United States, then there's there's the possibility. That the United States opts not to get involved, but then you've got you know a harder fight in the event that they do, and you know I I don't think we know how China 
where China comes down on that debate. Right? I don't know that we know that they've really made a decision about it, though certainly some of their doctrinal writings suggest that 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 early, you know, early strike, um, initial strike on the United States, at least on its bases in the region, is is likely. Um, you know, hopefully we'll never have to find out. <laughs> Regardless of whether China launch a first strike against the US or uh, another ally, would military or would a military response be the only US's option to to respond to a Chinese invasion or Chinese attack? Because if, again, we go back to Ukraine, the West is trying to punish Russia with cutting them off from the world economy, essentially, and isolating Putin politically on the world stage. But I get the sense that that wouldn't really be possible against China, given that the world's economy is pretty much reliant on China in some way. And through the Belt and Road Initiative and things like this, China have built influence globally. So you can't isolate Beijing in the same way that you can Moscow. Now, I know there's no clear policy, as we've already mentioned in Washington, in, in regards to how the US might respond. But what options are actually on the table in the event of a full-blown Chinese invasion? I, I mean, look, I think you're, I think you're right that those, those sorts of options are limited. I think it would be difficult to even try to match what we've done in the Russia case in, in the event that we wanted to do the same to China. And again, even if even if we were to to sort of match that, I don't think it it hobbles China in the way that it, it you know may end up hobbling Russia, just because China is so much larger and and, and more more powerful. So, uh, I, you know, in the event that there's 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 use of force, I mean, I I do think the United States absolutely takes the sorts of economic measures we've taken against Russia, and I think it tries to bring along as many allies you know, in other, other partners as it can. You know, I think that there is, you know, a sort of a public relations campaign to, um, to embarrass China, to try to, you know, raise criticism of China around the world. But when it comes to getting China to halt an assault, step back from its attack on Taiwan, I don't think any of those things are effective on their own. I, I don't think there's a solution here that doesn't involve military action. Um, you know, part of that, I think, comes from, you know, lessons we can draw from what we've seen in Ukraine, but also, and I, you know, I should say I'm not, I'm not a Russia hand, uh, you know, but based on my own understanding, I, you know, I think Taiwan is far more important to Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership than Ukraine is to, to Putin and the, the Russian leadership. Taiwan has been on the receiving end of all sorts of Chinese pressure and coercion for decades and decades. It has been a you know key aspect of sort of the U.S.-China relationship for for decades and decades. And and those things I think just aren't quite true in the Ukraine case. And so think about how hard it is to get Russia to back down without direct U.S., NATO, Western military involvement. I think it's far harder in in the Taiwan case. You say that Taiwan is more important to, to China than Ukraine is to Russia. But would you also say that Taiwan is more important to America than Ukraine is to America? Yes. Um I, I think that's I think that's accurate. And and I do think Ukraine is is quite important to the United States. And I think, you know, the approach thus far has shown that. Um but you know I think when it comes to Taiwan again, there's this de decades old relationship. 
Taiwan's a, a former ally. Um, there are close people-to-people -people economic, political ties. When you think about U.S. alliance relationships in Asia, there will be significant pressure out of Japan in particular, but perhaps also Australia, uh, maybe the Philippines, and maybe even from countries like Vietnam and Singapore for the United States to get directly involved in a, in a way that um, you know it hasn't in 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 Ukraine. You know, when you think about all of the the issues and interests which um, are driving the United States and China to loggerheads, I think the most important of those sort of issues all pass through Taiwan. I'm glad you mentioned Japan. Thailand, Philippines, Australia, because I was going to ask for my final question, you'll be glad to hear, about these other regional powers. I wonder how important these countries are in either mediating, deterring, or if necessary, war fighting. But I also wanted to ask about European countries, because the UK recently announced that it has this tilt towards the Indo-Pacific region. Should European countries be involved in, in this issue, or should they be uh, should they be focusing on European security rather than any potential conflict with China? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, great questions. Uh, I'll take them in turn. So on the, when it comes to Asian allies, I, I think there's a role here across the board. I, I'm skeptical that there's a role for mediation, um, but I do think that there is a role for both uh, deterrence and when it, when it comes to deterrence and when it comes to to war fighting. So, you know, one of the things that we've seen the Obama administration do um, over the past year and a half is elevate the importance of, of Taiwan in its bilateral engagements with other countries, right? So we've seen, you know, joint presidential statements or two plus two statements, the U.S.-Japan, U.S.-Korea, U.S.-Australia, others specifically mention concerns about peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, that, that's sort of new and different. I think that's a, it's a positive thing. Um, I think that the more countries that that have and voice an interest in peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, uh, you know, I think that contributes to deterrence. Um, you know, to the extent that China recognizes the problems it will cause for multiple countries, you know, the harder it will think about causing those problems. You know, certainly, you know, if it comes to a, a conflict. The United States is going to want to rely on Japan at, at least for access. Um, ditto for Australia. You know, I think we would hope for direct contributions to a fight if there's going to be a fight. Um, but I imagine there's also recognition that that's going to be extremely difficult. I think Korea is a pretty interesting case. Um, uh, you know, I, I would expect that the United States will want the Koreans to themselves to focus on, you know, on the potential threat from the North, focus on making sure that North Korea doesn't try to take advantage of instability elsewhere. Um, again, the United States would probably like access to be able to use airfields in particular to prosecute a war in the Taiwan Strait, um, but might be willing to forego that access uh, in order to. You know, keep South Korea out of the fight, right? To keep things calm on the peninsula. When it comes to Europe, so I think there is a role, but it's it's a limited role. So I mean, I, I think that the sort of the the tilt 
is is a good thing. You know, France recently released its own strategy for the Indo-Pacific. The EU put out a strategy document. Um, you know, NATO has started talking more about China. I think this is all positive. You know, countries like France and the UK in particular have have a you know immediate interests in the Indo-Pacific. France, of course, has a lot of territory out, out in the region. Um, you know, I, I do think we want the United States wants European countries focused primarily on the Russia challenge, um, uh, in part because that's where they can really bring capabilities to bear, in part because that allows the United States to, to focus a bit more uh, elsewhere. Uh, that being said, I think. You know, there are things that European countries and the EU can do to contribute to, to stability in the Taiwan Strait, you know, w- without without having a you know, British naval flotilla constantly off the you know, southeastern coast of China. So, you know, what does that look like? I think it looks like trade in particular. Um, I think if we saw a proliferation of free trade agreements between Taiwan and, and European partners and, and the EU, uh, that would help. Right. It would. As I was sort of saying about Asian allies earlier, it would increase the number of countries in Europe that have important economic interests in stability in the Taiwan Strait, and and that could have a, a deterrent effect vis-a-vis China. You know, beyond that, I, I certainly think that um, diplomatic support in international organizations uh, is important. I think you know that European countries can play a role in getting Taiwan some more space and opportunities to. Uh, engage with international organizations. And again, I think that's a way to contribute to stability in the Taiwan Strait. Um, and again, to sort of uh, complicate China's own calculus uh, when when Taiwan is a sort of a, a more regular member of the international community. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mike. I think that's a really good place to, to end it on, really. Europe has a role to play in this dispute and that economic relations and diplomatic efforts can do quite a lot to potentially reduce the likelihood of war in the South China Sea and between China and Taiwan. Yep. This has been a really engaging discussion and a terrific insight into relations between China, Taiwan and the US in particular. So thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Some really great insights there, so thanks again to Mike for agreeing to come on the show. For a minute there, I thought I'd actually coined a new term in strategic confusion. I was well chuffed with myself until I googled it afterwards and discovered that one of the first hits was an article, you guessed it, on Biden's comments regarding Taiwan. So not particularly original, never mind. But this is a hugely significant issue, and despite the ongoing war in Ukraine, It really shouldn't mean that people get distracted and lose sight of what's going on between China and Taiwan, given the massive ramifications that any conflict there could have for all of us. Anyway, join us next time for the final episode of Airpower International Security Series 1, where I'll be talking to Justin Bronk about the future of UK airpower. See you then.